Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Do you guys ever have one of those days where you just finish getting sentenced for one set of crimes? And then you get indicted for, like, a totally different set of crimes? That's my Tuesday. The worst. Ah, it sucks. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the Lock Him Up edition. I'm Shane Harris. Free man. Free man as of now. Not for, for now. Yeah. For now. That's what you think. <laughs> Check your inbox. <laughs> you too might be suddenly indicted. Uh, Paul Manafort is having a rough day, you guys. Yeah, it's it's kind of bad because you, you, get, you get your good ruling for you only, uh, you know, four years or whatever it was from from Judge Ellis. And you think you're, you're in the, the clear. And then you go before Judge Amy Berman Jackson and you're Worried that maybe she's going to throw 10 years at you and it's going to be consecutive and then you'd have like 14 years. But she actually – you walk away from that with only seven and a half years and so you've actually done pretty well. And then the New York uh, – the Manhattan DA socks you with 16 Boom. felony counts. The timing of that was literally almost to the minute as far as I could tell. Yeah. Do you think they were like watching Twitter? No. So they could drop that? Oh, no way. <laughs> I'm sure it had another time. It had nothing to do with it at all. But we will discuss all of that in the show. I'm here in the New Jungle Studio with Tamara Kaufman, Wittis, Ben Wittis, and Susan Hennessy. Hi, guys. Hi. Hey. I'm back. Welcome back. I was about to say, <laughs> two weeks away. Yeah. Do you spell back B-A-Q? No, I spell it B-A-A-A-A-A-A-A-C-K. Nice. She was in Iraq. Iraq, oh. back from Iraq. Back from Iraq. <laughs> back from Iraq, and I know that. I'm not going to rap for you today. So <laughs> don't on, worry. Shane. Don't turn off the podcast. <laughs> this week on the podcast, former Trump campaign manager Paul Manafort is heading to prison and facing new charges. You say that so gleefully. No, no, no. It's just more, just more of like the humor of the moment. I am yeah. completely dispassionate on the subject. Um, Liar. <laughs> that's not true at all. If you thought the if you thought the Arab Spring was over, think again. And a massage parlor owner with suspected links to the Chinese government was reportedly selling access to Trump's private Florida resort. Like you do. As one does. As one does. Happens yeah. all the time. Only the best people. Uh, all right. Let's start with Manafort. Um, ben, you actually just gave a fairly concise explanation of what happened. Paul Manafort obviously finished up with the sentencing with Judge Jackson, probably feeling pretty good that the sentencing was going to total about seven and a half years, uh, which is not an insignificant amount of time, but less than people thought he might get. And then boom, he has hit with this these charges in New York. Just talk a little bit about, I mean, sum up for us, you think, the, the, the magnitude of the sentence versus the magnitude of the crimes, because I think that there are some people who feel like he got off easy. Uh, and there's been a lot of you know, comparisons to other people's sentence through far greater uh, terms for far less offenses. Uh, and then what happens now in light of this New York DA charge? 
Right. So I I have a perhaps unpopular view on the sentencing issue, which is that I'm not especially offended by the sentences he got. I generally am of the view that sentencing in the United States is too harsh and I particularly feel that way about nonviolent offenses. And while I do think white-collar crime is grossly under-prosecuted, I don't tend to think that it's under-sentenced. And so I don't mind at all that Paul Manafort might spend seven and a half years in prison rather than uh, you know, 25 years in prison. And actually, some of the lengthier white-collar sentences that we've seen over the last period of time have actually given me a lot of anxiety. And so I don't really mind the leniency that uh, judges showed him. I do think that the disparities between their willingness to show him sentencing leniency and the willingness in other cases to show people leniency is troubling. But I, it's not doesn't bother me on Manafort's behalf. It bothers me on behalf of the people who don't get that kind of sentencing leniency. That said, the thing about Paul Manafort is that this is a target-rich environment, right? And so uh, the danger with Paul Manafort to me was never that he was going to get too little time. And as I say, I'm not especially offended by the amount of time that he got. The danger is that the president is going to pardon him and that he is going to comport himself in a fashion to attract uh, the president's pardon, and that therefore he doesn't serve any time or any additional time. And so in that context, I actually think the New York indictment is salutary in that it basically says, okay, we are removing some aspect of the question of justice for Paul Manafort and justice to Paul Manafort uh, from the power of the president to undo and so basically, you know, there is no part of – with the exception of what Amy Berman Jackson, the judge in the D.C. case did, there's no part of this that I wouldn't have handled a little bit differently. I thought Judge Ellis's comportment of himself, you know, last week was pretty terrible and I thought the suggestion that he has made pervasively throughout this process that Paul Manafort is, you know, some kind of a victim of, a, of an over – over-aggressive special prosecutor is is terrible. So there's lots of things I would have done differently, but I don't think the outcome is bad. And I actually think the idea of a seven and a half year sentence backstopped by whatever happens in the state of New York is a pretty attractive outcome. And just to, to, to one point on that question of you know Manafort portraying himself as the victim or the target of an overzealous prosecutor or a witch hunt uh, as his former candidate might call it. Uh, the, the judge, Judge Jackson, pretty firmly rebutted that. She said, um, there's no question this defendant knew better. He knew exactly what he was doing. And on the question of whether anyone in Trump's campaign had conspired with or colluded with the Russians, she said that was never presented in this case. Um, this is a non sequitur, essentially saying like, look, don't try and tie this up with the Russia investigation, this this man committed numerous crimes, knew exactly what he was doing and is being sentenced accordingly. Um, so she kind of pushing back on that. Susan, the, the Manhattan DA's charges, which stem largely from related to mortgage fraud involving properties that Manafort owned in New York, I mean, should we read that as 
a prosecutor legitimately moving forward with with crimes that they think were committed in their jurisdiction or trying to pardon-proof Paul Manafort's conviction, which would be more of a political act, or can it be both? So I don't know that – I think it is both, and I don't know that pardon-proofing Paul Manafort's conviction is necessarily inappropriately political, right? So – this is sort of federalism in action. There's a reason why we've uh, divided responsibility. We could have decided to allow a president to pardon state crimes as well and didn't. Um, you know, I, I do think that it's going – and I think that, that this is an example of, of the benefit of precisely that kind of structure. I think it is going to give rise to claims of poor Paul Manafort. He's been targeted because of his political affiliation with the president. I think it's that's a little bit of the wrong way to understand it. Yeah, the right way to understand it is that he spent an entire career breaking the law. Right. And <laughs> and had he not been uh, Donald Trump's campaign manager, I don't think that he would be under indictment right now because nobody would have looked at him closely. And so once you have someone who's in a very, very high profile position who's committing so many crimes, I mean, an impressive number of crimes – that's going to bring precisely this type of scrutiny. There's nothing improper or retaliatory about that. That's just how the justice system works. Whenever you, there are more crimes to prosecute than any prosecutor could could possibly actually hold people accountable for. Right. Here's a pro tip, people: if you want to be a serial criminal, just keep your just head below the parapet. Under the radar, guys. Yeah. Just fly under. Don't wear ostrich uh, skin jackets. Look, and I, I tend justice for the ostrich. <laughs> I tend to agree with Ben that seven and a half years in prison is a long time. I do think it's light. I, I was surprised that Amy Berman Jackson didn't decide to uh, essentially max the max the guidelines and give him 10 years either concurrently or consecutively in this case. And that's actually not not because of uh, you know everything that he'd done outside of the courtroom that wasn't charged, but actually – because of the attempts to blatantly game the system, because of the lack of remorse, because of sort of the lack of respect shown to the court, that actually is the sort of circumstance in which you really want to throw the book at somebody and show them that, you know, look, if you want the benefit of leniency in sentencing, you don't get to play these kinds of games once you come to the court. That said, I think uh, the Manafort thread to the extent that it's now come to a conclusion, it's come to a little bit of an unsatisfying one. And that's not because he's not going to spend enough time in prison, right? seven and a half years in prison, six and a half years in prison that he'll actually end up serving. I, I, that doesn't give me any particular heartburn. But because there are so many important unanswered questions here. And so I do think that this gets us back to is the Mueller report going to answer any of these? So Franklin Farr in the uh, Atlantic, after uh, Manafort was sentenced in uh, in Virginia, uh, came up with a list of questions of sort of the unanswered questions related to Paul Manafort's uh, conduct, including Konstantin Klimnik, their relationship, his relationship with Oleg, Dar- Oleg Deripaska, his role in this Ukrainian peace plan, uh, this banker that he suggested um, – Trump select as one of his economic advisors. There are all these big, weird red flags that something is is seriously up, that there are ties between the Trump campaign and the Kremlin's plan. And, and you know, the Jackson is right. They weren't addressed at all in this case. And so I think it does leave this big looming question of, 
is this going to be how this whole thing wraps up with people are charged for the conduct that they can actually be prosecuted for? If the special counsel's office doesn't feel like they can prove these other questions in court, then the public is just never going to get an answer. And I fear a little bit that this is a little bit of a preview of how this might ultimately conclude with, I guess, the emotional justice or injustice, depending on your perspective, of somebody being sufficiently punished. But the point here is not the punishment. It's the answers and the information. And that is one thing that this trial just didn't produce. Yeah. And I wonder... Of course, we're all thinking about the timing of the Mueller report. And we've asked this question so many ways in the podcast before. I keep coming back to wondering whether Bob Mueller is thinking the same things that you are, Susan, right? Is that he's seen these prosecutions. Very similar. Or very similar, right. Uh, And he's thinking like, look, there is this other set of questions that in many ways are far more important for the public to know than holding Paul Manafort to account for tax evasion and fraud, which is, of course, of of public interest and is important too. I I mean, Tammy, what do you think about, I mean, imagining a scenario in which Mueller doesn't really issue much of any kind of finding or statement on these other bigger questions at all and we're just sort of left with you know the image of him in a wheelchair with a you know gout-ridden foot saying I'm sorry for tax fraud and he goes away for 7 years and that's it. I mean, can you imagine that being politically sustainable? Well, the public seems like half the country would just lose their mind over it. Yeah, I actually think ha- most of the country will forget the name Paul Manafort right. all too quickly. Like I think part of the battle about this investigation from the very beginning, and we've seen the White House just relentless on this, is the battle over the narrative. What is this all about? And so the more they prosecute Paul Manafort for these various you know, financial crimes or whatever, the more that narrative gets lost. Um, and so you know, the question is, is that something that Bob Mueller feels is within his purview to worry about or to care about? I mean, he's not a political actor. He's not a communications expert. Um, his job isn't to write a 9-11 commission style report that explains to the American people what happened to them in the 2016 election. That's not the job that he was given. And, you know, by all accounts, that's not how he sees his role. And so I doubt that I don't think that we should necessarily expect him to make up for the information gap, the narrative gap that I think you and Susan are both identifying, and it's very real and it's very troubling. I just think the likelihood is, you know, unless Congress then wraps this all up in some kind of report, you know, we we talked a few weeks ago about how even if the Mueller report hits Congress tomorrow, that just begins a whole new phase of a congressional investigation, right? right? So maybe the narrative ultimately comes from Congress, not from Bob Mueller. But the narrative battle, the political battle over the narrative, I think in some ways, like, we've already lost the thread. I I mean, at some point, though, you do have to wonder, and it's hard to sort of psychoanalyze Bob Mueller from a distance. Somebody has... Or up close. (laughs) Bob Mueller's therapist has trouble psychoanalyzing Bob Mueller. I'm trying to imagine the Long, awkward silences. (laughs) You know, but, but you... You look back historically at sort of pivotal moments in the development of the country and the way we got through them was individual people stepping up to their moment in history and recognizing the role that they played, recognizing sort of Come on, Paul, they were the one, <laughs> right? And, and that 
that Congress can't really answer this question, right? That anything Congress produces is going to end up being political, being denied by oh, the other on. side. We had a Warren Commission. We had a Church and Pike committees. We we had. But enough- is there any sense that we could have the kinds of bipartisanship that was necessary to actually have meaningful congressional investigations? I, I think, if anything, the fact that we aren't seeing more in court is is some evidence that what has occurred here or may have occurred here are precisely the kinds of crimes, behavior, whatever, that the executive branch is in a much better position to investigate and get answers to than Congress. Even Congress on its best behavior working together, they just have a more limited set of tools. They don't have huge offices of professional investigators and prosecutors. And so while I, I think it's it's possible and even likely that they're sort of playing this as a by the book and this was my mandate and it's not my job, I, I do wonder if there isn't some voice in his head that realizes that to the extent there's meaningful information here about the president of the United States, he is really the only person who is in a position to to put it in a format that the American public is going to be able to to see and act on it. Yeah, I would not give up on the narrative elements of uh, the Mueller report before we know that it is not going to deliver that. Uh, and here's why. Bob Mueller has a limited role and he knows he has a limited role. But he is also not an idiot. And he knows that the entire political system has been waiting for his uh, results to make all kinds of decisions about what to do. And in doing so, he also knows that it has deferred all kinds of investigative action on its own behalf, like calling certain witnesses, like, you know, and under those circumstances, I don't think you have to be Jim Comey in the summer of 2017 to say, wait a minute, there is some obligation on our part to give some answers here. And Bill Barr in his testimony seemed to be acknowledging that. You know, he said, I'm committed to making as much of it public as possible, consistent with the law. And so I think a lot of people have an understanding that part of the function of the Mueller report, at least as communicated through some other mechanism, is going to be to provide certain answers to certain questions. And while I'm uh, willing to believe that he may take such a limited role of view of his own role that it doesn't end up serving that function, I think I'm going to wait till that problem actually presents itself before I'm going to assume that that's the outcome. Okay. Speaking of assuming outcomes... <laughs> There's a segue for you, Shane. Yeah, exactly. What is it they say? History doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Is it the idea? Yeah, yeah, it might um, be rhyming a little bit. So time. there is, Tammy, there is upheaval in Algeria, in Sudan. We are seeing protests. We are seeing uh, people fall from power. There are the obvious questions going on. Are we witnessing another Arab Spring or is the Arab Spring that it never really go away and it's flaring up again? Educate us on what we are seeing and what we can expect uh, in this part of the world that I feel like we constantly find it in upheaval. But I think when we were talking about the Arab Spring in 2011, we were imagining it coming out the other side looking dramatically transformed and that didn't really happen in a lot of places. So what are we seeing now? 
Yeah, so this is this week we mark actually the eighth anniversary of the beginning of the Syrian uprising, which began as a peaceful protests countrywide in Syria before a forceful response from the Syrian government and Bashar al-Assad sort of turned that into a civil war. At the same time, eight years ago, you know, we had Tunisia had just ousted their longtime dictator. The Egyptians had just compelled uh, Hosni Mubarak to step down from the presidency um, in Bahrain. Peaceful protests have been going on for a month and the same day the Syrian uprising started, actually, the Saudis and Bahrainis cracked down on protests in Bahrain. The Libyan uprising was going on. There were protests in Jordan and Morocco. And you're right. There was this expectation that the Middle East, the Arab world would never be the same. And then just a few years later, it seemed as though, for the most part, that expectation had been overturned with the, the military coup in Egypt and and this sort of counter-revolutionary movement. And so, you know, from those days to these, this region has been suffused with civil conflicts, with sectarian uh, narratives about some of those conflicts and, and a lot of turmoil. And yet, you know, despite all of the crisis and stasis, the underlying drivers of those uprisings never really got addressed. The drivers being you know, a massive young population that um, was underemployed and unemployed and frustrated over corruption, the fact that you had these aging autocratic leaders in place with no clear succession plans, um, and and the kind of opening of information um, for these societies in ways that allowed them to organize, but also to see how they were doing relative to the rest of the world and just in a way that really increased a lot of frustrations. So now we see protests having erupted starting several months ago, actually, in Sudan. It's been quite sustained against uh, Omar Bashir, who's 85 years old, who's been in power continuously since 1989 when he took power in a coup. And he so, does not look well when he is seen in public. He doesn't look well, but, you know... Maybe he's well preserved, but he is now the long formaldehyde, right? Like a preserved. <laughs> no, no, lemon. that's that's for Bouteflika. We'll get to him in a minute. <laughs> um, so Bashir is actually since Qaddafi's ouster the longest serving mm. Arab autocrat. It's a you know a sought after status, I guess. And um, these protests have been ongoing in the face of violent crackdowns from the government. He declared a state, permanent state of emergency last month, and that hasn't ended the protests. We don't know where this is going in Sudan. He doesn't seem like he's about to go anywhere, and the the military and other sources of support for his regime don't seem to be cracked. The situation is very different in Algeria, where Bouteflika has been in power since 1999, so you know, a little bit less time. But he was uh, he had a stroke several years ago, hasn't been seen speaking in public pretty much since then. And yet he was going to run for a fifth term as president in April. And that's what kicked off these protests a few weeks ago. 
puts a new uh, meaning to the term, they'll run anybody with a pulse. Yeah, right. Because he probably qualifies on that ground. <laughs> exactly. That ground alone. <laughs> we right. believe he has a pulse. And in fact, um, when his papers were, his candidacy papers were filed, he was in Europe undergoing medical treatment. So he didn't, even though the law requires that the presidential candidate file their papers in person, that was obviously not something he could do. And then when in the face of these protests just on Monday, he agreed not to seek a fifth term, he made that statement in a letter that was released to the press. So it's clearly not necessarily Bouteflika himself who is making these decisions, right? And that, I think, leads us to the question of what does this mean? You know, how much change can we actually expect here? In the Sudanese case, I'm not at all confident that the protesters can prevail We've seen in a lot of situations where you have mass protests against an autocratic government that unless you have cracks within the ruling elite, uh, the mass protests don't necessarily result in political change. In Bouteflika's case, it seems as though there were enough cracks in the ruling elite to force Bouteflika's withdrawal. But what they've set up now is a situation where he's going to remain as president extra constitutionally, indefinitely until they have some kind of national conference and write a new constitution, which Bouteflika's statement said would be ready before the end of the year. And so this gives the Algerian military and the others in uh, the power, as they call it, the power structure of Algeria, a chance to kind of rig the political transition process. So it may not end up being dramatic change. I guess what I find moving about this and meaningful is that these are unlike the the Arab Spring in 2011, where you know the Tunisian protests lasted for about six weeks, I guess, um, and the Egyptians less. These protests have been going on in Sudan for months, and in Algeria, they look like they're ready to go on as long as they need to until they get what they want. So there's a persistence and a patience here, and also I think an awareness of the failings of that earlier round of efforts at political change. So sort of unwilling to accept at face value, you know, what's in front of them and um, more realism about what it takes to achieve meaningful change. So, you know, we can hope, I guess, that the Algerians uh, get more of the change that they're seeking. So if we see protesters learning the lesson of perseverance from the Arab Spring, do we see regimes learning lessons and adapting? Do we see foreign governments learning lessons, right? Has, has, have the lessons of Arab Spring been learned by all parties in a way that, that is now visible? Or do we sort of not quite know how that legacy is going to play out? Yeah, that's a, I think that's a really interesting question. So when I think back to eight years ago this week, when the Syrian uprising began, when the crackdown in Bahrain happened, I think it was the beginning of the end of that Arab Spring because it was the moment when autocrats began to fight back. <laughs> you know, the Tunisian uh, military did not start shooting protesters. In fact, they kind of refused to defend the regime. But the Tunisian police tried to put down the protesters and failed. They weren't willing or able to use enough force to really crush the protests in the way that we saw Iran, for example, do in 2009 or the Chinese do in Tiananmen Square. In Egypt, 
you know, again, the military did not go after the protesters. But in Syria, in Libya, in those places where the military was willing to defend the autocracy, we ended up with a civil war and a disaster. And I think that some autocrats took the lesson from that, like, don't wait, crack down hard, crack down right away, and you can survive. So it's notable that in neither of these cases have we seen that fierce crackdown. And I think that, you know, that it, first of all, it emboldens protesters. But secondly, it creates space for political negotiations. I mean, my field would tell you that the most stable kinds of political transitions are the ones that are negotiated, that are pacted transitions where elites from the ruling group and the opposition kind of get together and come up with a plan. South Africa, it took 10 years for that transition to play itself out. And it was all carefully negotiated. And so, you know, that can be frustrating for those of us who have an image of kind of the Berlin Wall falling. <laughs> um, but it's actually the way that mo more stable democratic transitions take place. And should we be understanding this as something systemic or is this all country specific and maybe it will succeed in Sudan and not Algeria and like we have to take each on its own terms or is it kind of like the Arab Spring and that clearly there are cross-cutting currents that something bigger than any single regime or any single country is happening? So Algeria is an interesting case because I think Number one, they had a horrific civil war in the 1990s. And that, I think that's one reason why they didn't have protests in 2011 is that, you know, they had the negative demonstration effect of their previous experience and they didn't want to go back there. But faced with a fifth term of a catatonic president, it was like almost too humiliating. But I, I think that both protesters and the government have learned across cases. The, we've seen the Algerian security services figure out ways to divide the protesters so that they couldn't mass, which is something the Egyptian security services failed to do. You know, and we've also seen, as, as uh, we were discussing earlier, the protesters learn that they need to be persistent and not sort of declare victory too soon. You know, to me, the lesson is that there is diversity across the Arab world each of these cases is obviously unique in certain ways, but more than that, each of these countries is going to have to find its own path out of whatever mess it's in now, right? The Tunisians seem to be very slowly, creakingly working their way through a, a process of democratic elections and compromise and um, working through the crimes of the past. The Egyptians seem mired in polarization and violence um, and, and intense, intense repression. And, you know, I think that one of the things I worry about is that some governments in the region aren't willing to allow different countries to find different solutions because having anything that's a counterexample to what they would want is too threatening. Is it, just as a final question on this segment, is there something else that the administration, this administration, could be doing to bring about the kinds of outcomes that we would like to see? Or are we just foolish to think that we can influence these currents? I mean, you know, obviously the, the Obama administration 
wanted to see democratic, peaceful transitions to power in the Arab Spring. That's not really what happened. We don't have to relitigate that. But do we? Although we over, could if we wanted to. We could. We could do that over many, many podcasts. Different podcasts. But do we overestimate the influence that a president or an administration has on the outcome of these kinds of social movements and these currents? I think that when things get to this point, really no outside actor has that much influence because for the regimes, it's existential. And for the people who are out in the streets, they've clearly decided that they're willing to risk everything to be out there. So at that point, you know, the U.S. might have a lot of leverage, but it's not going to weigh relative to the existential concerns of the regime. But in fact, in these two cases, the United States has very little leverage. In fact, I would say in Sudan, almost no outside actors have real leverage. Omar Bashir was indicted by the International Criminal Court in uh, 2009. He doesn't care. Um, He's under international sanctions, including from the United States, but from most Western governments. doesn't matter. Like there really isn't anyone I think who has significant leverage over him and his decision making. Algeria is a little different because the French have this colonial legacy there and probably the strongest – trade connections and, you know, military connections and stuff like that. But I don't sense that the French are exactly pushing the Algerian security services or the Algerian regime into liberalizing. That doesn't seem to be their approach to the region in general. It's fascinating to me that, well, maybe it shouldn't be so surprising, but the Trump administration hasn't had a word to say about either of these, not even to say, like, we believe in the right to protest you know, don't shoot people. I mean, nothing. It's really, really striking. Secretary Pompeo released the country reports on human rights practices today at the State Department. I don't think this came up at all. All right. Well, let's move from a story of people yearning to breathe free to massage parlor owners yearning to sell Chinese businesses access to the president's golf club at Mar-a-Lago. <laughs> We all have those yearnings. That's this is America, damn This it. is really a story. <laughs> God given rights. <clears throat> this is the story of an entrepreneur, you guys, Li Yang, who owns a string of massage parlors in Florida. And according to Mother Jones, which has done some pretty amazing reporting on this, I'll quote from them, created and operated a business that sold Chinese business executives access to President Trump and his family at Mar-a-Lago. She also has yet another intriguing line of work. She is an officer of two groups with ties to China's communist government. So just when the story could not get any weirder, just to <laughs> recap this for everyone. Um, Wait, just how, when the story couldn't get any more sordid. Yeah, sordid. Let's be honest. Yeah, let's be more specific. <laughs> it's not weird. It's sordid. Yes. It's massage parlors. It's human trafficking. It's this woman who – has been photographed near the president. Uh, I think it was in a cell phone video that kind of got this all started, wasn't there? A cell phone picture? Um, who owns the string of massage parlors and, and Susan has this business basically engineered to give people access to the president at the club, um, which is sort of in and of itself. But according to this new reporting, Li Yang has these connections to uh, two groups, Mother Jones reports. One was that she was a member of the National Committee of uh, 
Asian America of the Asian American Republican Party, but she was also tapped for senior roles in two other groups focused on China-related issues, one being, according to Mother Jones, the Florida branch of the Council for the Promotion of Peaceful of the Peaceful Unification of China and the Miami chapter of the American Arm of the Chinese Association of Science and Technology. Okay, what are those, you ask? They're organizations with direct links to China's Communist Party. So this went from being sorted to being potentially a counterintelligence threat. And so far as this woman, Li Yang, seems to have ties to organizations that are fronts for the Chinese government in the United States. So when you go to these massage parlors, can you order up like, I'd like the counterintelligence massage special, sure. please? <laughs> I'd like the spy versus spy. <laughs> yeah, so look, um, you actually, to make it even more sorted than all of the sorted pieces you've put on the table, right? the reason why this came to light in the first place was, of course, because uh, as part of taking down this essentially human trafficking ring, the uh, New England Patriots owner, uh, Bob Kraft, was uh, arrested, uh, also a close friend and associate uh, of the president's. And so I actually think it's important to sort of be, root the story in in the in where it began. Um, and even though it's tempting, and, and I'm guilty of it as well, to sort of chuckle about kind of the happy endings piece of this, um, it's really hideous stuff that happens. This is, uh, you know, large-scale, complex human trafficking. And um, uh, anyone who has an especially strong stomach should spend some time with the actual uh, charging materials. It's, uh, it's really pretty horrific stuff. So we have to start by understanding that the people who the president already associates as part of his orbit, including people he considers close friends, um, are caught up in uh, this really, really appalling human trafficking and, and essentially sex slavery ring. Um, then, because this person uh, sort of made it to the front page, otherwise we would this would still be ongoing and we would have no idea. But because of this other massive uh, scandal, uh, there was new sort of uh, focus on this individual. Um, and what she's doing is using Mar-a-Lago to sell access to the president and sell access to government officials. This is exactly what people warned about from the outset. This is why you have presidents divest from their businesses, because you don't want people to be able to pay money in order to get access to U.S. officials in this way. Keep in mind that the White House has not, even though Trump calls Mar-a-Lago the Winter White House and takes all kinds of meetings there, including meeting for, meeting foreign heads of state, uh, including the Chinese right. foreign head of state. Uh, <laughs> ponder that for a moment. Has anyone um, figured out whether she was there? This is some somebody should go and like look through all the videos. I'm sure somebody, uh, some poor producer, is doing that right now and trying to to match up the faces. Um, but essentially, the situation in the United States of America right now is that you can get access to the president of the United States and to high-ranking cabinet officials for a price, and you can do so while circumventing all transparency laws related to the United States. And oh, by the way, the price that you pay is not a price of political and campaign donations, which are regulated in such a way to prevent foreign payments. Instead, you can write a check to the guy personally. Just It, it really is uh, its remarkable efficiency that they figured out here. Of course, this has now become a counterintelligence threat. Of course, every foreign intelligence service has been looking at Mar-a-Lago as uh, 
potential way to compromise or gain information about the United States. We had reports that in this Xi Jinping visit to to Mar-a-Lago, they were actually discussing classified materials in the dining room. And maybe anybody could have. So we've already heard all kinds of stories about the potential really, really grave security compromises and threats that are ongoing. Now we have one specific example. We need to understand this is just one specific example. It is almost certainly emblematic of all kinds of other examples because, frankly, it would be negligent of a foreign intelligence service to not attempt to capitalize on this particular venue. It is so high value. It is so low cost. It is so obvious. You would be a fool to not try it. Um, and so this is certainly the tip of the iceberg. But it really does show the ways in which the president's compromised financial dealings put him in a position to be taken advantage of not just by foreign individuals and sort of these business interests, but also by intelligence services that either work knowingly with those individuals or are simply highly aware of their activity and are able to use them as vectors of compromise. This is the security threat laid out right before us. And yet it's it got a couple days of headlines and now people are sort of moving on. I mean, you couldn't ask for a more clear-cut example. And it probably – and to some degree, I think it got caught up in the, <clears throat> the sordid nature of it. And you're right. People miss the, the, the more serious human costs associated with things like this. But one question it does raise is what is the responsibility of the intelligence community and particularly the counterintelligence components of the DNI, of the FBI to go to the president and say, look, I mean, obviously they would do it respectfully and say, we have reason to believe that this club where you insist on spending so much of your time and so much doing so much business of the United States could potentially be overrun with people like this. I mean, can is there a conversation imagine? you can have with him like that? Don't you think they probably do? Did that like on day one, and he just said, "Well, don't worry about it. You know, I'm smart. I'll t- yeah, I'm not going to let yeah. it." And like that's the end of it I mean, because they can't do it against his wishes. Right. I guess I imagine there being some kind of what the community might call defensive briefings that occur that maybe are not quite penetrating to the president. I can also imagine, as just as you said, Tammy, that you could probably sit him down and say, this is a gigantic risk. We are strongly advising you not to do this. And he would say, what do you know? And go away and you're yeah. not going to cramp my style. Yes, yeah, so there's a couple possibilities here in escalating intensity of seriousness. So one is that The basic problem is an ethics and appearances problem, but that you don't have a a serious counterintelligence problem except in theory. So that looks like this. Yeah, she is using the club to bring people to the club. It gets them in kind of proximity to the president, but the president is pretty shielded by his people And so basically what she's selling is the ability to see the president and kind of be within shouting distance or sometimes within selfie distance, right, of the president. And that may be a very high value to her financially, 
but it's not actually significant from a point of view of influencing the president or engaging with the president. And therefore, the uh, actual counterintelligence risk is minimal. Now, what's not minimal in that scenario is exactly the point that Susan made before, which is, you know, back during the Clinton administration, there was this huge scandal about you know, foreign, specifically Chinese money flowing into the Democratic National Committee, right? And this is that on steroids. It's not into the Democratic National Committee. It's into the president's pockets, right? And so, yeah, that's a massive ethics problem, but that is a different matter from whether there's a counterintelligence problem. Second possibility is that there is a counterintelligence problem, and it is that she is in some kind of a cutout for or being influenced by uh, Chinese intelligence, and they are trying to insinuate people in an active way inside of Mar-a-Lago, but that our people are aware of it, And look, you can't keep them out of the president's club if they're members and the president ignores, but you can sure as heck keep them away from from a situation where they can do anything. And so, yeah, it's a counterintelligence problem, but it's a controlled one that is being managed and being managed actually without the active cooperation of the president. There's just a kind of, you know, people are doing what they need to do in order to to control the situation. Third possibility, and this is the one that I think we should all be afraid of, is that uh, a lot of our counterintelligence people are learning about this the same way that we are, which is by reading Mother Jones. And, you know, to all of you out there who think that the intelligence community is always so far ahead of everybody, you know, one of the ways they learn things is about reading by reading them in the press. And so you should consider the possibility that actually there's a holy shit moment going on uh, inside of uh, the CI world where they are realizing if this has gone from a potentially hypothetical problem to an actual problem in a very short space of time. I will say that um, in my conversation with Chris Ray last week, one moment in which he grew especially animated, I mean, he is not an especially animated guy, was when he said the nature of the Chinese counterintelligence threat was something, and he said, I'm not a guy who's prone to hyperbole. It shocked me. And he was really, really emphatic on the point that- For a guy who doesn't really do emphatic. Right. <laughs> that I agree. There's there's a whole lot that they're probably just learning about, but it's clear that what the FBI is seeing on the counterintelligence side is enough to have the director being publicly very, very concerned about it. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's absolutely right. That echoes conversations I've had with people- lower than his level throughout the community who describe this as a pervasive, systematic, full coverage, uh, saturated intelligence gathering effort well, that is targeting, targeting officials, universities. Right? Oh, yeah. No, no, it's, Absolutely. it's targeting it's everything. And right. in fact, Chris Ray's comments in this were really interesting. I mean, he was talking about the diversity and scope of of the operations. And by the way, Nobody, you know, to go back to something Susan said, nobody should be mad at the Chinese for doing this. This is exactly what we would do. And, you know, the idea that you think about ways to access people and insinuate people close to leadership for purposes of exploitation and intelligence gathering and influence, there is nothing wrong with that. There's nothing 
in international law that forbids it. The only thing is shame on us if we allow it. I'm going to say there's not nothing wrong with it and we'll reserve the right to be angry at the Chinese just uh, acknowledging my hypocrisy in doing so and noting that this is really on us to defend ourselves. Yeah, I, yeah. I actually want to be really bloodless about this. You know, back when the back when well, the we do o- prosecute espionage. It is against no, no. American law. Well, so we should prosecute people, but we should prosecute people understanding that we would be that we do exactly the same thing over there. And, you know, back when back when the OMB hack happened. I think it was Jim Clapper who said he had no problem with the Chinese about this. And, and maybe Hayden said something similar. You know, I wouldn't have if, – if, if it had been me on the other end, I wouldn't have hesitated. Of course I would have gone after this kind of material. I wouldn't have asked permission. He gives a long list of I wouldn't haves. And he says, you know, it's up to us to prevent this sort of thing. And that's the way we – I think the way we should look at this. This is – this is a country's serious intelligence interests, and we have a president who makes himself vulnerable to it. That is on us, not on them. Look, one final point, the importance of humility on the part of government officials, that one of the things we've seen from the White House, from the president, from his children, from his close associates, is this sense that they cannot be compromised, that they are too smart, that they know what's going on. And one lesson here is an unwillingness to identify your incapacity to recognize threats is harmful to the United States. It puts you in a vulnerable position. And whenever you are the president such that people can only offer to help you, they can't force you to accept that help, that kind of hubris is an actual threat to the security of the United States. I think you're giving him too much credit, actually, Susan. I think that what we've seen from the president in the controversy over his son-in-law's clearance in his refusal to divest himself is not uh, I'm too smart to be compromised. It's an I don't care. You know, this is not my problem. In other words, safeguarding the national security secrets of the United States of America is not my problem. Quit telling me that it's my responsibility. That's what I see. Well, it's my responsibility to ask you all for your object lessons. I have an object lesson. Do you? Okay, you want to go first? So I will go first. Um, So my object lesson is this little story video um, that the FBI put out on Twitter recently talking about William Webster, who is the former FBI director uh, and also former director of the CIA, sort of the only person to hold both of those roles. He is now 95 years old. Um, In 2014, he and his wife were targeted for this Jamaican lotto scam, uh, right? scammers uh, attempting to extort them for money. Um, And so what they did was turned around and helped the FBI investigate and bring this guy down. He just was sentenced to a relatively long prison term. Um, And there's just something I love about that. William Webster, 95 years old, still busting the bad guys, uh, you know, and it just, it warmed my my little heart. You know, we were at the... uh, FBI Agents Association annual dinner, Susan and I, a couple months ago, and they gave him a and, and you were there too, Shane. And we gave uh, they gave him an award, a sort of lifetime award. 
and he was, sh- you know, sharp and funny and uh, 95 years old. Yeah. Don't try and scam the man. <laughs> <laughs> How bad of a scammer are you if you <laughs> accidentally try to target That's the former just bad FBI luck right and CIA there. director? Seriously. Uh, Tammy, what's your object? Okay. So we are not only uh, marking the eighth anniversary of the Syrian uprising this week, we're also marking the 30th anniversary of the World Wide Web, people. Whew. Um, which is making me feel old because I remember life before the web and I remember life before my smartphone. And although I love my smartphone, I love how convenient it makes my ability to resolve arguments with my children over the dinner table. Um, No, it makes my life more convenient in many, many ways. But I've also really come to feel over the last couple of years that it sucks up time that I could be using more productively and it diminishes my attention span for reading long pieces. And and so I I read this article in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago by a tech writer who feels the same way and who was touting this book, How to Break Up with Your Phone by Catherine Price. So when the tech writer at the New York Times revealed his average daily usage of his smartphone and it was three hours less than mine... <laughs> I was like, okay, I need this book now. Right. And I bought it and took it with me on my long, long trip. And I have to say, I'm learning a lot and being more mindful about how I use my phone and why and how I feel about it. I have goals for myself at the end of this process of breaking up with my phone. And I'm not going to break up with it completely, but I'm going to have a different kind of relationship. You're going to have other friends. Can I just say the single best thing you can do is be forced to work in a skiff where you don't have your phone all day. (laughs) Because I never used to check my phone. I would forget even on the weekends. And now it's like it's glued to my hand and my face. Is there one piece of advice that the author gives that you thought was most helpful? Um, well, I haven't gotten stuck. all the way through her 30-day program, but I actually like the mindfulness component. She says, when you feel the urge to pick up your phone before you pick it up, notice. How are you feeling? Are you feeling anxious? Are you feeling like you you want uh, feedback? You're looking for that dopamine hit from checking your social media likes? You know, It makes me think about, why am I picking up my phone right now? Do I have something to do? Am I just wasting time? You know, or am I looking for a fix? That's great. Uh, ben, what's your object? My object is a riddle. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to throw it out there for the rational security community to ruminate on. We love riddles. Here's the riddle. What do I, former uh, Justice Department National Security Chief David Chris, former radio talk show host and Bulwark podcast host Charlie Sykes, Rachel Maddow, John Legend, the former president of Estonia, Tomas Ilvis, and my Brookings colleague, Alina Polyakova, all have in common. You all have podcasts. I don't believe that's correct. You've all written for Lawfare. No, although any of those people is welcome to write You've for all Lawfare. been on Rachel Maddow's show. Ooh, maybe. Oh, that's an interesting. Like this is John Legend like the, Rachel so I, I don't know if that's true. That's an interesting. That's an interesting possibility. Anyway, that's the question. What do we all have in common? I feel like this is one of like the doctor was the mother. <laughs> <laughs> is this something you're going to answer next week? 
Maybe next week. Maybe the week after. Okay. But the, an- the answer is coming. Okay. Okay. It's out Check there. Check your phones, guys. You'll find out soon. It's out there. <laughs> John Legend, by the way, and his wife, very good taste in art. Just going to throw that out what? there, too. What kind of they art? They have excellent taste in art. They have a Lynn Drexler painting in their home, who's a painter who used to live on the island where we go some summers, Monhegan, ah. Maine. So either 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 uh, Chrissy Teigen and John Legend have very good taste in art, or their decorator has very good taste in art. <laughs> More likely, and either counts. That's fine. Uh, and speaking of counting, I count down to the last minutes of the show. Oh. Five, uh, you guys, four. <laughs> Rational Security minutes. is, of course, a production of Lawfare. Now we'll be out of here in less than that. <laughs> you can find our show page at the Lawfare website, lawfareblog.com. You can buy merch at lawfarestore.com, and you should. And I. I did, by the way. I got my hat and my hoodie came and all of our shirts came. That's very exciting. We enjoy those. So go check out some of that stuff. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security. Tweet Ben that answers to his riddles at R-A-T-L Security or find him on Twitter. Find us all on Twitter. You can find us on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and a review. It really helps us out. Our audio engineer this week was Matthew Kahn. The show was edited and produced by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Paul Manafort and his new prison blues band, Revenge of the Ostrich. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds more like a punk metal yeah, band. Definitely. Yeah. I thought you were going to go with like a crime of fashion angle. Oh, I tried that before. When I said there was no accounting for taste, but there is for tax fraud. Yeah. Should put that on a t-shirt. Yeah, exactly. And Sophia Yan, I would send her one gladly. On behalf of my friends, Ben Wittes, Tamara Goffin Wittes, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Goodbye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 